Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the international editor at Adweek. And with me, as always, is Shannon Miller, creative and inclusion editor here at Adweek. Shannon, how are you feeling in 2022? Um. A lot like I did in 2021, but I am going to fix that, I promise. Um, so a happy new year to everybody else. <laughs> yeah, just kind of just kind of stumbling into the year, uh, but we're all just doing our best. Uh, today we are here to talk about 2022. Uh, we've got a lot going on. We've got Adweek's Outlook event uh, this week. It's a free event, so check out, uh, you can just Google Adweek Outlook event. Uh, you can still register uh, if you're listening to this early in the week. Uh, we also have a ton of articles on adweek.com looking at from a wide range of beats of what we expect to happen this year across television, across, um, of course, advertising and marketing with agencies, uh, with uh, with the metaverse and with NFTs and creativity. So much, so much is going on there. So check it all out. Uh, check that all out on adweek.com. And Shannon, uh, wanted to start, we're going to be kind of just uh, changing things up a little bit. Uh, today, we're going to have a cavalcade of Adweek <laughs> talent, of editors and writers, our peers who are going to be coming through telling us what they expect to see happening in their beats. So... Uh, you know, I think uh, most folks listening to this will probably, hopefully, uh, uh, most all these topics will matter to you uh, or at least be important to you uh, in, in your job, in your daily life, because uh, we're going to cover a big range of it. But you wrote one of these articles as well, Shannon. Tell us what you tackled. So um, on the creative side, we talked about the year of metaverse marketing, which, I mean, a, a lot of this is just about really untangling the huge knot or the huge mental knot that is the metaverse. I think we're still um, largely trying to figure out what Web3 is. But in terms of marketing, especially now with this sort of like fluctuating nature of the pandemic, we're shutting down, we're opening up, shutting down, opening up again. Um, creative is really going to largely rely, we feel, in on the digital space um, in order to maintain sort of a consistent outreach. And, and the metaverse is 
likely going to be a big part of that. Yeah, I, th- I think all of us, um, you know, if you have mixed feelings about uh, NFTs, about the metaverse, about Web3, uh, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. I, I would say we kind of uh, both went into this. You and I talked a lot about this story as you were working on it. And I feel like we kind of went into it pretty uh, open-minded but neutral. Like it feels like a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of people are either I hate this or I have changed my entire social media identity to be .eth and there's a monkey wearing a hat and like you know it's like you're 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 either all in or you uh, or you hate everything about it. Right. I feel like you and I were just kind of in the middle of it. Sometimes can feel exhausting to catch up on all this, but they're you know setting aside some of the shadier parts of it. There's a lot of potential here uh, for trying new things, and none of it's especially new in the sense that we've all been part of virtual communities uh, over the years, whether it's Second Life or whatever, or VR, we've all done VR. Right. Um, But how did you, I'm just curious how your own uh, kind of perspective on it changed over the course of reporting this, of, of how you are feeling about it going into this year. Well, the one thing that I was really worried about when it came to creativity is that um, it, it was in terms of how it has related to the pandemic, that it was taking a huge step backwards. We were looking specifically at um, experiential and, you know, we came off of a really creative year when it came to experiential. Um, A lot of brands were really leaning into that virtual space to sort of get out these big ideas that they couldn't execute in person. And then once it started to look like things were getting to some sort of semblance of normal, we were getting that flood of in-person invitations again, where it was like, oh, um, no one got sick in like 48 hours. Do you want to come to, <laughs> to Times Square? I remember those days where nobody got sick for 48 hours? Like, ah, oh, what a golden age. <laughs> what, what an idyllic time. And what, a brief, what a brief two weeks. Brief, brief. And so my, my huge worry is that this huge, this really accessible thing or this thing that was once made super accessible was going to be pretty exclusive again, especially for people like us who don't, reside in these huge marketing hubs like LA and New York. Um, And then once we got towards the end of the year, when we saw that it really wasn't heading in that direction just yet, um, that's when the metaverse sort of presented itself as a viable option for marketing. And so in that respect, I am really interested in seeing brands and agencies and creatives in general sort of find their space within this huge metaverse or metaverses, metaverse-i. I don't know what the plural is for, or are they even plural? Um, I'm really interested in seeing how this evolves in a way that makes marketing in general more accessible to all. Um, now, there's, again, as you mentioned before, there, there are the, the, the negative naysayers that are just like, screw this and screw NFTs, and I get it. I truly get it. Um, But I think the thing to remember is that this is new and any, like anything that's new, it needs time to evolve and really find its way. Um, The criticisms are valid, um, but I'm really interested in seeing how people who are really interested in involved in truly evolving this space Um, how they take these criticisms and actually address them, like the environmental issues with NFTs. I'm really excited to see 
people who are genuinely excited about NFTs, but recognize that there are there are still issues. Um, I'm excited to see how they decide to to take those on and um, address those in a really meaty way. Yeah, and I and I, I feel like your story does such a good job of explaining this kind of moment that we're in. Of not everything has to have proven itself as a business use case yet, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of we're in this fun period of finding out. Do these things have value? I remember when this period started around 07, 08, when social media was really emerging. But so were things like Second Life and brands were like, oh, let's try it. And who wanted to be the boring brand that was like, no, right. we make ads. You know, we we put ads in the on on televisions. Like it, it's, it's a minimal investment to try these things. And it felt like that was the overall advice uh, that folks offered for your story was – Hey, try it. Like, learn how it works. Mm. You know, try something, make something, partner with some creatives who know what they're doing, and that's something that stays true to your band. But maybe don't expect it to, uh, you know, change your entire business model. Maybe, but probably right. Not. Like it, exactly. Like it's it's not going to be. You know, it's not going to go off like gangbusters in the first shot. Like, there's going to be holes. It's going to look really clunky. Um, I feel for those first um, year years really taking it on. But the important thing is I think that people are going to recognize the brands that give it a shot that, you know, actually make an effort to evolve with the evolving times. So if you are one of those brands that are like, you know, we're sticking to tradition, we are sticking to the old way. The thing to remember is that like none of the old way is going anywhere. Like we're not getting rid of TVs and billboards Um, or experiential. This is just a new facet of it. And I think one of the things that I really wanted to touch on in the article was like, you you don't want to be the first, you know, it's not necessarily important to be the first to get it perfect, but you do want to be one of the first to show that you you have a willingness to grow. And that's where I think um, the metaverse is going to be pretty important. Yeah, it seems like at least this is your year where you have free reign to stumble around, not really know what you're doing. But two yeah. years from now, you're not going to have that luxury. Exactly. You, know, you can't be the brand the brand that's like, so how do these work? And, uh, you know, I just recently watched Free Guy and, and rewatched Ready Player One. And I think it's really easy to point to both of those and say that's what we mean by metaverse. But honestly, what they do a really good job of is explaining digital ownership. Like both of those movies have scenes where the characters are really proud of the the limited edition things that they've purchased with, you know, with cyber currency. Um, and so if you kind of take a step back, there's some really good examples within those movies of, oh, it makes sense. You don't question it when you see it in those movies. It's just when people say, why would I ever want to own a digital good? Well, I mean, if you're if you're in a space that's as valuable to you as it is to those characters, it makes sense. Um, so cannot recommend enough. Check out Shannon Miller's article about how the metaverse uh, will be taking shape this year, how marketers can get involved on Adweek.com. Thanks so much, Shannon. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back. We've got uh, a whole litany of great Adweek staffers to talk about what's coming up in their beats in 2022. We'll be right back. Joining us now is Jameson Fleming, uh, agencies editor here at Adweek. Uh, Jameson, you've written about how agencies can demonstrate their value going into 2022. This has been one of the the hottest conversations of the last few years uh, as agencies really 
try to prove their relevance in an increasingly, uh, I would say, complicated uh, marketing world uh, filled with influencers and creators and uh, niche agencies and everything else and in-house, Lord knows. So, Jameson, uh, I know you're going to talk us through some examples, but big picture, how would you summarize what what you think agencies should be doing to prove their value this year? Yeah, the, the value conversation really comes from this idea of, you know, what we saw in 2021, which was consolidation. Uh, So many big brands are consolidating within single holding companies. You have Coca-Cola with WPP. You had uh, Mercedes-Benz, Omnicon. There's just a whole list of them uh, that did this. And so it's left agencies, you know, questioning, do the bigger clients find more value in the simplicity of just working with one holding company? Or are they actually valuing the expertise that they provide? Um, and so the agencies are, are trying to figure that out and, and brand themselves and communicate with clients in a way that shows like, hey, you know, if you spread your marketing around, we can give you this expertise uh, that will help you get more out of your marketing dollars. Because for some brands, it may make sense to spend more upfront with agencies to get overall better outcomes instead of saving money on the agencies to get those similar outcomes. Overall, they might be able to save, clients might be able to save money that way. <clears throat> and a lot of this consolidation, you know, comes from the, the remarrying of creative and media that we saw this year, which is often easier to do when you're working with a single holding company. When you've got so many channels, as you mentioned, David, uh, that you're doing marketing and it makes a lot more sense to align all the minds behind it, whether it's creative or the media buying. Um, and so it's the biggest thing agencies are really thinking about is what is our superpower? What is the thing that we're best at that clients can come to us for and and walk away with with excellent uh, work that you know really moves the needle? Now, this sounds like uh, great news, obviously, for the holding companies and for the larger networks because they've got uh, several different agencies and they can say, well, here, this one's best in class for creative and this one's best in class for media strategy and influence and all these other things. But uh, is this bad news for independent agencies? You know, overall, I I still don't think it is because I know a lot of the independent agencies have really done a nice job of carving out what their niche is and what they're really best at. And so they're still finding clients coming to them just for that. I've had so many agencies that I talked to this year that were like, we're turning down a lot of RFPs because we know what we're good at. Clients are just coming straight to us. We're not having to pitch as much. And it's been able to, for a lot of the independent agencies, they've been able to cut down on the amount of time they spend pitching because they've been able to clearly define who they are. And a lot of these bigger pitches are, you know, the time that goes into them is being done by the holding companies now. Well, there's nothing saying that independent agencies can't find other partners. Uh, you don't have to be owned by the same company to work together on a pitch. Yeah, yeah, and that's that was what's interesting to me is, uh, you know, Pete Carter, who was working for P and G for 40 years, you know, helping them pick brands, and he was like, the I've seen independent agencies work together of. You know, a small creative agency picking out a media partner and pitching together uh, as a way to to have bigger scale and say, hey, we have this other agency who we're not affiliated with, but we work really well with. And together, we can provide you with everything you need to do. Yeah. And uh, the... I, I think something we saw uh, come up quite a bit over this past year, it sounds dry at first, unless you've tried running an agency or being paid by one, is payment terms. 
Uh, this is something that uh, we saw come up in the Coke pitch. Uh, when you're talking about some agencies that are willing to take on 60, 90 day payment terms, essentially becoming a lender, <laughs> you know, you're you're giving out uh, millions of dollars uh, as as unpa- you know un- interest free loans sometimes, uh, and the, a lot of folks feel that that's holding back diversity. Uh, is there anything agencies can do to not be victimized by this? It feels like the clients have all the power. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to if enough agencies can take a stand and say, you know, we're only going to work on 30 or 60 days and we're not going to do 90 or 120, then you might be able to see real change. But, you know, every time a, a agency accepts those longer terms, it just sets the clock back on when they can improve it. And, you know, it comes down to... Uh, you know, it, it hurts diversity a lot. You know, it's it's a known fact that uh, diverse creators and diversely owned businesses often don't have as much startup capital or capital on hand as other businesses, and they can't stomach those ninety day terms. They just don't have the money to do it, and so it really narrows the field. Uh, the bigger the brand gets of who they can work with. Uh, you know, if you're Coca-Cola or any of these brands that spend a billion dollars a quarter on marketing, there are not many agencies or holding companies who can float a billion dollars uh, to that partner. It's just the mathematics of it just don't work. Well, Jameson Fleming, Agencies Editor for Adweek, thanks so much for joining. I encourage everyone to check out for much, much more on these topics. Uh, it, Jameson's piece from our Outlook package for 2022 called What Ad, what ad Agencies Should Be Doing to Demonstrate Their Value in 2022. You can find that on adweek.com. Jameson, thanks so much. Thank you. We're back with uh, T.L. Stanley, Adweek Senior Editor, who covers uh, the world of cannabis marketing, along with plant-based food and several other key growing beats. Uh, thank you so much, Terry, for joining us. Uh, we're I think today we could talk about both of those because they are both gigantic categories, but let's talk cannabis. Let's do Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, We will be taking a lot of notes here from uh, Terry's excellent Outlook story. Uh, Legal cannabis could become a $30 billion U.S. industry in 2022. Here's where it will grow. You can find that story on adweek.com. But we're going to talk about a few of the highlights. As we mentioned that, I mean, the, 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 we're again, talking about the legal industry, we're talking specifically about U.S., $30 billion. That's tremendous growth uh, this year. We've seen tremendous growth year over year. Uh, first off, I, I think it's fascinating that you mentioned in your story, it's it, it's faster now to name the states that aren't legalizing <laughs> weed because it's become so common. And I think something that a lot of people don't think about is the lag time that we see of legalization for especially for recreational and then it takes a year or two to really get those industries going right and then we're just now kind of seeing the sometimes billion plus impact of some of these states unless you're arizona which uh legalized it for recreational and then almost immediately started selling and started selling (laughs) a lot of weed so (laughs) that that was unusual usually it takes time to um lay the groundwork set the foundation, medical market is already in place in those states. But there's there's um there are a lot of steps that they that a state needs to go through before they can um 
issue licenses and start selling recreationally. So yeah, usually it's a year, sometimes two here in California, it took at least two years. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in your story about uh, Illinois uh, doubled its total sales uh, after what well, it's legalized in 2020, right? And then in 2021, doubled total sales. I assume that growth is going to keep going as that industry matures. And you, you think about that happening in every, not every state's as big as Illinois, not every state has a Chicago, but I, I, I assume that this is going to account for a lot of that growth that we're talking about seeing uh, nationwide. And interesting states that are medical only, like Florida and Oklahoma, where such a thriving market, um, as soon as those states go recreational, it's sort of like the sky's the limit. But even without it, they are incredibly healthy markets. And we should, uh, I, I, I think most people know this, uh, but to clarify, uh, cannabis is still federally illegal in the United States. Uh, that has that puts severe limitations on everything from distribution to marketing. Uh, you can't advertise across state borders. They cannot do the kind of traditional marketing that we see from other brands. Uh, but it feels like uh, brands are getting pretty creative on that front, especially with hyper-localization. We've got the Super Bowl coming to Los Angeles this year. It feels like uh, these these emerging brands in the space are really getting very smart about how to make the most of what opportunities they do have to market. And yet um, another day, another person gets kicked off Instagram, you know, another brand gets kicked off Instagram. It's even the big ones. Um, and even the ones that try to be very educational in their content and very cautious about their language. Um, it's still a real uphill battle for them. Um, on conventional, the, the big conventional social platforms. Yeah, it's it's a always a good reminder, kind of like when, uh, you know, anything related to sex tries to advertise around public transit or, geez, you know, this is, uh, every platform is different. So you're trying to, to whether it's organic content or buying ads. I, I remember you wrote up a campaign where they never even mentioned cannabis. They know. <laughs> don't mention anything about what they are, what they do, uh, just the the backflips that some of these brands have to go to. Uh, I wanted to make sure to talk about the illicit market. This is a really fascinating. We all know that there continues to be a, a very large uh, illicit market for cannabis, as there has been for decades. Are, <laughs> tell us what you've learned about our brand, I mean, not brands, but our Entrepreneurs, canopreneurs within the space, are they going to be transitioning out of that illicit market or is it more like customers are just going to be moving away from that now that there are more legal options? Uh, and in your story, you say that you really expect some of the growth to come out of uh, transitioning from the illicit market to the legal market. It, it will probably be both. Um, I think the incentive for consumers to buy legally is that it's tested it's packaged, it's clear, you know what you're getting, but it's more expensive because it's so heavily taxed. For the retailers um, and the seller side, that the, the same issues are, it's much more expensive to be in the legal market. So it, it's already a challenging business. So to think that price would, the price is dramatically affected. Though I think that's, you know, there's a big movement here in California in the Bay Area where um, brands and dispensaries are really just revolting against the taxes because they're so heavy. So we'll kind of, I'm keeping an eye on that. We'll see what happens. But yes, you, um, you're going to get a safer product. 
as a consumer if you go the legal route, but it it will cost you more. The bottom line is different, and um, the illicit market is estimated to be maybe four times the size because it's it's well entrenched. I mean, we, we go back decades, right? Well, and, and something that I think is really fascinating that you've written about quite a bit is the retail, just the 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 mature maturation, I guess, of the of the retail side of cannabis. And I don't think we spend enough time thinking about what that does to sales, because you walk into one of these, you know, dispensaries used to be a bit like head shops and a little more kind of cramped feeling. And then now you walk into these Apple store level retailers, you're going to buy more than a quarter of an ounce. <laughs> you're you're going to do some shopping while you're there. Uh, you, you know, what do we call it in retail? Like your cart size is going to be larger than it would have been if you were just buying from your friend Jimmy in high school. We've got um, some dispensaries that have opened recently in the Southern California area, also in Vegas, not surprisingly, that are like, that's not just an Apple store. That's like freaking Disneyland. I mean, they are so sort of Instagram ready, uh, lovely, beautiful, all these things happening. It really is like a theme park, honestly. So uh, yes, brick and mortar knows it needs to step up. So we've kind of, you know, having a lovely retail environment is table stakes anymore. We are so, so far beyond those creepy shops that you kind of didn't want to go into in a neighborhood that maybe you felt like you shouldn't be in to start with. Uh, it's it's far, far beyond that. And um, I think retailers are doing some very interesting things. Pretty soon there will be, where legal, they will be adding things like consumption lounges on site. It's going to get um, really interesting on the retail side. All right. Scale of one to 10, how likely, one being not likely at all, 10 being extremely likely, are we to see federal legalization in 2022? You know what? I was not that optimistic even when, even with a new administration, um, there's still just too much opposition. And as we've seen, you know, I think the, the Biden administration pretty quickly said, we're too busy. We don't have time to deal with that. We have other, you know, we have other fish to fry. I didn't expect it quickly. And I, I don't expect it now. I expect, like someone has, someone said in that story, incremental change, incremental gains, things like banking, you know, other kinds of um, ways of doing business that are going to make life easier for canapreneurs. But um, I don't expect federal legalization this year. I really don't. It, it will happen eventually. But um, the states, honestly, aren't doing such a bad job of um, steering their own programs. There are plenty of problems with them. Um, Social equity licenses are are still a big headache and um, a pain point for people trying to get into the industry. Um, But I, I think the states are, the states are handling it. The states will continue to handle it. Yeah. So you're, it sounds like you're settling around on a two out on the scale of one. Yeah. Yeah. What drama would have to happen? We've already had a pandemic that has, you know, that has brought cities to their knees and states. So this is a source of revenue. This is a source of jobs. And if they didn't just blanket say, yes, let's do it. 
then um, what would it take, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, T.L. Stanley, thank you so much for joining us. Cannot recommend enough. Check out, check out, just Google T.L. Stanley and Adelaide. Read all of her articles. They're all so, so very good. Um, it, Terry has covered stuff we don't even have time to get into, like the Pabst uh, Twitter controversy. So if you're interested to catch up on all that, definitely check out adweek.com and everything T.L. Stanley writes. Terry, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Anytime. It's always my pleasure. We're back in. Joining me is David Kaplan, our brand marketing and performance marketing editor here at Adweek. David, how are you doing? Good. How about yourself, David? Great to see you in the new year. Yes. Welcome. Welcome to 2022. Uh, As our listeners know, we are uh, taking a look at just about everything. Can't talk about the future of the marketing landscape without talking about brands. And that is obviously the world you oversee here at Adweek. You took a fascinating look uh, with your piece in our Outlook package uh, for for the 2022 uh, Outlook. You wrote about the great brand identity crisis that's coming this year. Uh, (laughs) And and you took that in a few different directions that I'd love to talk about. First, though, let's talk about CMOs. I, I I feel like we've been seeing the evolution of the chief marketing officer role in recent years. It went in some directions that seemed to not necessarily pay off. Uh, but if nothing else, the trend seems to be that, it, that any CMO needs to be more than a CMO now. Right, exactly. That The idea is that these... You know, uh, our, our word of the year is certainly convergence and the CMO, you know, over the past few years has had to take on a kind of technology role in addition to directing the marketing as those as those disciplines became more synthesized. And then the idea of directing the the technology, as well as, you know, more esoteric and essential parts of the brand story, the, this idea of brand purpose became you know, really at the fore of what that job entails. So you, you've got someone having to think philosophically about what brand identity means, uh, you know, in, during a time of of tremendous political and, and global disease upheaval. Uh, and yet you have to still think about the practicality of selling stuff as well. And there's a lot of different roles that that get entwined with with that one single point person as as CMO. So it's the the role has had to evolve and I think you know that like anything else you you kind of learn by doing and I think the the best CMOs have formed this this hybrid chief marketing and communications officer role um as our our colleague Heidi Palermo had put it. Uh you know she basically said that there's you're responsible for you know the basic idea and identity and look of the brand, as well as figuring out what customer experience means. And then also figuring out what are the the distribution channels, the technology channels that you have to master in order to communicate all those various things. And so this idea of the hybrid CMO, CMO plus role is, is something that you can really see in a in a, a bit more concrete and you know more specific way this year, I think. And not, not to be uh, kind of to, to minimize the role of the CMO in the past, but I really do feel like they had a budget. They kind of oversaw that budget and they they looked at results and said, OK, here's the results we got for the money we spent on advertising. And they basically oversaw the strategy of that. Now you've got uh, and you spend a lot of time in your article talking about brand purpose. Uh, that's. These are no longer easily quantifiable things, but on the other hand, if you don't do them, 
you will suffer if you don't at least <laughs> ask yourself, should we really communicate our purpose? Uh, should we be part of larger conversations around our category, our industry, our customers that they're struggling with each day? How how do you think CMOs are, are doing on that front and how do you see them doing this year in terms of really kind of coming to terms with those conversations that go beyond the the dollar metrics? Yeah, I, I, exactly. I think the biggest challenge that everyone is used to being able to measure performance, uh, to use my other title here, the idea is that everything should be measured. And things like brand purpose are something like engagement that it really hard to, to nail down in the way that you can nail down how many how many people went to your site or how many people downloaded your video or your app. The idea of brand purpose is something that you, you know, as, as I say in the piece, you can't really satisfy with a 30 second spot. You can't satisfy it with a, with a, a new tagline or a logo. It really has to be a, a gradual daily way of, of life for the brand. And it's, it goes beyond, but it does include the, the marketing around it, the design and all those other traditional things that a CMO has been, you know, been responsible for. And then, so this idea of brand purpose, you know, every, every brand has you know, found themselves in the crosshairs last year having to take a stand, whether it was issues of diversity that they had to really answer for, not just, you know, promote in a, you know, in a gauzy way for uh, a particular holiday or a particular month, but they actually had to prove this is what we stand for and this is how we're living it. Um, I think the, you know, the 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 ways that that brand purpose is kind of uh, to, hate to use a 2.0, but a brand purpose kind of really coming, you know, into a, a more formal discipline this year is okay. Last year was the experimentation. This year we really know how you know how deep that that story goes and how it's shaping and how it's shaping the brand and and the way people perceive it um you know another another point i i was trying to make was that people see themselves you know the cliche everyone's a brand right and and you know every brand's a publisher and 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 everyone kind of sees themselves in this kind of marketing context so how has that brand purpose that the groundwork was laid last year how does it how does it really uh, you know, manifest itself in 2022. And that's where the real test comes into. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's still so much weariness with, as I said, the the pandemic and and the great resignation, which we're still seeing articles about every every week and still seeing signs of. There's a sense of when do we get back to normal? And the idea is we've we've had to really start to ingest a new normalcy, and we're still defining that. And part of that is that brand purpose is not something that okay we can put the purpose back on the shelf and we can just get about you know, sales and and just the traditional thoughts of of what marketing and advertising entailed. It's still, it's now something that I think brands will be ultimately judged by and that will ultimately not something that they can just sort of, okay, let's relax and we can, you know, just get back to, you know, the idea of just selling products or getting people in stores or getting people to download things. It's really is Yeah, that that part of that part of the normal's gone. <laughs> that part of the normal is gone. It's it's is uh, you know, there's a lot of ways of defining the new normal and I, I think it's still going to be 
an evolutionary process. But I think the idea is that there's no going back to people just sort of separating out who they are and and why they buy, what they buy, why they don't buy certain other things. So it is part of people's identities are wrapped up with the, the brand choices that they make and brands will, you know, just have to you reflect that and how to figure out if they're doing it well. It's unfortunately a lot of times you really know when when there's trouble when you're hit with something and that's and and the and the level of of uh you know kind of room that uh, that consumers will give a brand versus the room that that will not be given a brand. That's where brand purpose will really, you know, you'll know if it's effective or not. Well, I want to give two quick plugs. Uh, One for uh, David's excellent article, The Great Great Brand Identity Crisis Coming in 2022 on adweek.com. You can find that along with all of our other Outlook stories. And also, uh, as part of our Outlook event happening this week, it's free, it's virtual, uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Baratunde Thurston, uh, who hosts the excellent How to Citizen podcast. We're going to be talking about the role of brands in being better citizens. And basically, if you enjoy hearing about brand purpose and how brands can be more legitimate in their support of improving our country, improving our world, uh, give it a listen. Uh, It's going to be an excellent conversation. Uh, Baratunde is just one of the most fascinating voices out there uh, right now. So uh, very honored to join him in a conversation this week and honored as always to talk to you, David Kaplan. Thanks so much for joining. Honor is all mine, David. Thank you so much. All right. Now we are joined by uh, emerging tech reporter here at Adweek, Patrick Kolb. Patrick, uh, we have talked a little bit at the beginning of this episode about uh, kind of the outlook for the metaverse, for uh, NFTs, this this larger uh, Web3 ecosystem. Uh, but you have dug a little deeper into it. Uh, you've really looked at the outlook for 2022 in terms of crypto and kind of the modern evolutions of, of what we've been calling blockchain for several years as kind of the overarching term. I guess tell us, you know, we we've mentioned that a few brands have dabbled uh, with NFTs. It's been just more, I'd say, more for fun than anything. Uh, if you you can, you're welcome to disagree. I don't really feel. Like, I think they've been more surprised, if anything, when these things turn out to be profitable uh, for brands. But tell us, kind of looking back at 2021, how you would describe the way that brands were using these kinds of uh, dabbling in these spaces versus what you're expecting in 2022. Yeah, I think that 2021 was the year that brands really kind of threw everything at the wall with NFTs. They just wanted to get in the space and see what it was like and try to experiment with a little bit, experiment with it a little bit. And they didn't necessarily have, um, NFTs didn't necessarily serve any type of brand purpose or like marketing agenda, they just kind of wanted to experiment with them as a novelty. And then I think what we're going to start to see more in 2022 is brands get serious about how these fit into like uh, loyalty programs or how they can tie these NFTs to experience and how they might better serve kind of the brand's purpose. But I think 2021 was really the year of experimentation in the NFT space. Yeah, it feels like loyalty and collecting themed, uh, you know, executions are where we really saw a lot of traction uh, this past year. It's like you don't see a lot of people buy one NFT or like buy, you know, try buying, investing in a crypto thing once. Like it feels like once you've gone in you're in. And a lot of the folks seem to really be focused on, I love this. I'm going to pick up more. Uh, so it feels like the there's a lot of frequency there once you've gotten past that initial hump of getting your consumers to even understand what, what we're talking about. 
And that's what something that the brands and the experts that I talked to were kind of uh, kind of grappling with this year was also like, how do you balance like making this accessible to newcomers and people who are already followers of your brand and people who are kind of enthusiasts about the crypto space? So you don't want to lose those people who like are want it to be a real NFT and um but you also want to be able to kind of explain this very complicated concept to someone who's just an average customer. Um, and I think one front that they've kind of had to grapple with that on is like whether you allow these NFTs to be bought and sold through cryptocurrency or like through a debit card. And I think that more are coming down on trying to make these more accessible to people. Yeah, we we did see some backlash uh, when, you know, I say backlash, it was probably relatively confined, but uh, folks who are really passionate about this space feeling like brands were just being stunty, you know, just putting something out, making fun of NFTs, putting out something. It may even be a real NFT, but kind of with the sole purpose of making fun of it. Uh, and a lot of folks just felt like that was self-defeating. Um, I, I guess what kind of tone are you expecting from brands in terms of when they announce NFT stuff? Do you think it'll feel... Do you think it'll still feel very stunty from consumer brands and that they're just trying to generate headlines? Or do you think they're going to get more serious about really putting these out as just kind of run of the mill products? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think the stunts are going to start to wane a little bit. I'm sure that there will still be stunts in 2022, but um, I think that they're going to start to see the more forward thinking brands kind of get serious. And yeah, it might not look as much like Charmin selling a uh, toilet paper NFT, but actually something that will tie into the brand's purpose and be kind of more run of the mill and not just for the sake of getting a headline that says, uh, oh, this brand is selling this NFT. Well, I encourage everyone to check out Patrick's story is 2022, the year that brands get serious about crypto. That's on adweek.com, of course. But Patrick, I can't let you go as you and I are both the co-parents, the co-creators of the Super Bowl bot, Adweek's AI that writes Super Bowl ad pitches. Where do you see AI going this year? It feels like last year was 2021 was surprisingly a little quiet. We didn't have as much big news about emerging tech in the AI space, but we saw a lot of maturity, a lot of like that technology really kind of proving itself, a ton of services coming out. Like you and I talk a lot about all these AI copywriting services. There's there's hundreds out there now. Uh, It really does feel like it's become almost like uh, Photoshop plugins. Like there's so much AI content uh, service out there. Where do you see AI going in 2022? Yeah, I think in terms of the type of AI that we used for Superbot, the GPT-3 and all those other types of like large language models, language generation. Generation. Um, I think those are breeding a ton of different startups and the space is really like inundated, inundated with all these, like you mentioned, these copywriting services or these different types of like product description generators. And I think we're going to start to see um, companies try to kind of differentiate themselves this year and try to like come up with something that's like a little bit to set themselves out of this very crowded market and maybe make their own model or put their own different spin on it. So maybe we'll start to see uh, a little bit more difference between some of these companies and we'll start to see companies trying new things. But I think 2021 was really like a building year for those companies in that regard. Yeah, it feels like the irony is that, you know, we created the Super Bowl bot. I, I don't think the Super Bowl is where you will see AI content really thrive. It's in it's in these companies that have 700 products that they need descriptions for or when you want to make a ton of variations of all this stuff. And, of course, in the NFT space, everything is supposed to be unique. <laughs> and so when you're talking about creating hundreds and hundreds of unique products, uh, that's where you really want these, these well-trained AI copywriters uh, that can just generate your descriptions for you and then just make it easier to go back and edit. Um, 
I think a lot of people still have this uh, dystopian hellscape uh, idea of, of AI copywriters. Uh, and uh, it, it, sadly, it's a little more pedestrian than that. But uh, well, thank you so much, Patrick Culp, Emerging Tech Reporter here at Adweek. Always great to chat with you. Thank you. We are joined now by Lucinda Southern, media editor here at Adweek. Uh, Lucy, there's so much happening in the spaces you cover. Uh, when we say media, I think we, your job entails more categories, I think, than all of us uh, put together uh, because you talk about uh, things like programmatic and how media is bought and sold and the publishers themselves. But it feels like this year uh, – much like last year, but uh, maybe a little more pressing, is really figuring out life after the third-party cookie, uh, this thing that has been the, uh, not to overstate it, the lifeblood of digital marketing <laughs> since for, for many, many years now. And uh, everyone from publishers to marketers have to figure out how to navigate this post-cookie world. Uh, where are we right now in terms of when this actually goes into effect, uh, barring any further delays? Oh, yeah. Great question, um, because there could well be more delays. Uh, so far, it's the um, going to be Q1 of 2023. So that's what Google has stated is when it's going to um, kill third-party cookies in Chrome. But then, yeah, who knows? That could get kicked down the road even further. This is uh, the year where the number of alternative identifying tech has just exploded and um, people say it's going to be a pretty pivotal year in figuring out, I mean, like it's an industry that loves hyperbole. So every year is pivotal, but this one, um, it's really when agencies, brands, publishers are going to like kick the tires on those alternative identifiers and try and figure out the ones that are going to suit them. Yeah. So walk us through some of that. Obviously the way that uh, advertising, I think if people, even if you're not really into this space, into this part of the marketing world, you know that, uh, cookies are used to track your activity on the web and then customize your advertising. Uh, but there are other ways. It's not a complete apocalypse, right, for being able to serve up targeted ads. What are some of the alternatives for how people like us can be targeted with ads that are relevant to us without relying on cookies and, and how specifically the ones you really think are going to be the hottest topics this year? Mm. The one that has uh, the sort of the marketing method that is getting a lot of attention um, and is kind of termed as a bit of a comeback or renaissance is around contextual targeting because that doesn't require any kind of personal identifiable information. Um, it's And it's become a lot more sophisticated than, you know, sports publisher shows soccer ad or something. Um, you know, you could have like yoga moms that also like trucking or something, but it's um, lots of different publishers, ad tech companies, uh, agencies of brands. They're also getting into the contextual space, making more, um, sophisticated tools, uh, more features, um, figuring out ways that they can uh, really amp up this type of targeting to make it make it more useful and capture some of those ad dollars that are going to be disappearing. But that's then creating tensions around you know who owns that data if it's on the publisher's page and it's potentially being uh, used for commercial purposes by some other um, some other vendor companies. So that kind of push and pull um, around who's going to own that data is, is going to intensify from what I've been speaking to, to execs about. And that's that's going to be a bit of a concern. And that's going to be yeah, kind of a bit of a battleground that's going to be heating up over the next year. 
And in terms of mergers and acquisitions, M&A, I feel like this is going to be yet another big year. seems like every year is a big year for M&A, but especially when the economy is relatively strong and folks have money uh, and and these emerging spaces. What areas, what kind of companies do you expect to get snatched up? That's uh, well, we are just off um, hearing this week about New York Times finally putting a price on the athletic, um, which is, I guess, the, the price was the, the price tag was what people were kind of wondering about. You know, this is something that's been reported for a while. So the, the when and the how much is the interesting part. But that sort of signals how subscription publishers, particularly, are trying to find ways. Um, and the New York Times has been fantastic about this in offering kind of like lifestyle products to keep people who are subscribing to keep them interested to like keep growing their subscriptions and it's found a a great partner in the athletic but uh i mean my god there's going to be so many there's already been so many deals this this year and we're on like the first week so (laughs) recording this on day six i think of the the year it's going well it's going well for for all of those uh bankers but um yeah it, it there's going to be a, a, a sort of a whole range. I mean, SPACs, not, probably not going to hear a lot about SPACs this year after BuzzFeed's performance at the tail end of last year. The, the kind of the interest around that has definitely cooled. Um, but there's going to be, yeah, a ton of different, different mergers and acquisitions um, from the big digital media companies that are just going to keep growing. And, and then also the smaller ones sort of like scooping up different smaller uh, companies that we might not have have necessarily heard of, but it's all in the name of scale um, in order to kind of compete against the the tech platforms. Well, it is, there is so much more we could dedicate an entire uh, episode, an entire hour or two to just talking about the issues that you get into in your story. Instead, I will encourage everyone to go give it a read. Uh, the headline on Lucinda's story is 2022 will be a year of unintended consequences from the pivot to privacy. Uh, just a stellar read, and it goes into so many areas that, like I said, we've touched on today. So if you're if you're interested in these areas, you want to learn more, you want to stay on top of it, and in general, just uh, keep a close eye on Lucinda's writing. It is fantastic and uh, really one of the best, uh, most informed voices in the space. So thank you so much for making time for us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that is it. I feel like we've looked at all of 2022 you can think of from the marketing perspective, but maybe we missed some stuff. Uh, Drop us a note, podcast at adweek.com. Let us know what you'd like to learn more about coming this year. Maybe we will tackle it uh, in a future episode. Got Got a lot of months left here. Uh, and we got Super Bowl coming up. So keep a close eye on adweek.com because we have so much content already coming about Super Bowl. Going to have a lot more soon and some really fun stuff this year. I cannot wait to tell you about. Uh, but we're out of time for this week. Uh, our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Al Manorino and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, if you have not already, would love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and even if it's just a five-star rating. Uh, but if you've got time to leave a review we love reading those and it definitely helps new listeners discover the show uh so for for shannon miller and myself and for everyone at adweek thanks so much for listening we will be back next week hey there are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company meet viral growth your one-stop shop for video content and audience building imagine growing your brand organically on social media with out the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? 
Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. 